My name is Penny Paul. I'm the Information and Connections Coordinator at the Summer Foundation and I convene the Consumer and Family Care Network. The purpose of the network is to share information that can support the quality of life of people under 65 with disability and complex support needs residing in or at risk of admission to residential aged care nursing homes and their families and supporters. We publish a quarterly newsletter and send out e-bulletins from time to time. I'm also available by phone or email to help you with your information needs and, and answer your questions as best I can. Perhaps the most promising development for young people in or at risk of admission to aged care is the NDIS policy on specialist disability accommodation payments. So I think it's useful to put this workshop in the context of the work of the Summer Foundation. Established by Dr Di Winkler in 2006, the organisation's vision is that young people with disability and complex care needs will have inherent values as members of our society with access to a range of housing and support options that enhance their health, wellbeing and participation. Our mission is to create, lead, demonstrate long-term sustainable changes that stop young people from being forced to live in nursing homes because there's nowhere else for them. Nationally, there are more than 6,000 young people living in nursing homes. So clearly ours is a big task. So today's session is about capturing and sharing knowledge that we've gained through developing housing and support prototypes to build the capacity of the consumer and, care, consumer and family care network to explore the potential of SDA payments to create more affordable, accessible housing for people with disability and complex support needs. It's a complex area, so I'm delighted that Justin Nix, who is possibly the most knowledgeable person around on these payments, has agreed to um, give us a presentation and take questions on this topic today. Thanks, Penny, and um, big thanks to Penny for organising and facilitating today. Um, I'm very, very passionate about accessible housing, and I, I work with SDA, the guidelines, um, every day of, of my working week. And as much as I know about SDA, I think at the moment, about every two weeks, something's happening in the SDA journey that even I stop and think, oh, hang on a minute, I wasn't aware of that or I didn't see that coming and I think that really sums up um, the complexity around SDA. You know, SDA, it, it, it's a journey that we're all on, it's rapidly evolving, um, it's the, the response by the housing sector is fascinating and we'll talk about a bit, bit more about that later um, and it's just, look, it's probably I think that the big what we need to get excited about with SDA is it's the biggest social reform in accessible housing that I've ever seen in the last 30 years. The last 30 years I've been working with accessible housing um, with, with builders for the non-for-profit sector, housing associations, doing home modifications for people with disability. And it's the biggest reform I've ever seen. So there's lots of opportunity there, but there's lots of complexity there and lots of risk as well. So. What I want you guys to get out of today is um, there's going to be a lot of information to take in, you know, as part of this workshop. Um, I want you to have an awareness uh, about some of the issues at the end of it. And at the end of it, after we, you know, spend a lot of time talking about SDA, I'm going to give you three or four key take-home messages that I think will be of value to you. And what I'm hoping to do is give you enough information and things to consider 
to empower you, you know, whether you're a person with a disability or a family member or someone who wants to build accessible accommodation. I really want you to go away feeling more empowered um, after this workshop. I'm really conscious too that people in the room have very different levels of understanding of SDA. Um, I know that some people in the audience have a really good understanding of SDA and, and are quite well progressed with what they may be looking at or delivering as a housing solution, whereas other people may not have much of an awareness. So just bear with us a little bit. Some aspects of the presentation I'm going to gloss over a little bit more quickly than others because they may not be as irrelevant, um, sorry, as relevant, and we've got a lot to get through. Um, SDA is an interesting term. Personally, I hate it. Um, don't tell the NDIA that. <laughs> I, I think I look at SDA and think specialist disability accommodation. It's not either of those three, really. I like to think of it as accessible housing. There should be nothing specialist about the, the housing that we design and build. Um, it shouldn't be disability focused. Um, and um, I hate referring to it as accommodation. I think that's got a very institutionalised feel and approach. So I like to call it accessible housing. The slide we're looking at now, and I apologise if anyone's got a visual impairment, we're looking at a slide with building blocks that are um, somehow fit together. It's a bit of an optical illusion. But th th this is how I summarise SDA at the moment. We've got all these pieces that we're trying to fit together. And at the moment, we're putting them together. But at the end of the day, we take a step back and look at it and say, it doesn't quite look right. <laughs> And, and I think this picture will evolve um, uh, over the next year or two. So the slide we're looking at now is what is SDA? Um, basically, this is outlining the framework. Uh, obviously, at the, the very top, we've got the NDIS Act. You know, the whole SDA framework is governed um, by the NDIS Act. Um, there's parameters in there that the framework had to comply to and ultimately the whole NDIS, NDIA scheme is governed by that Act. Um, secondly, we have uh, the NDIA put out a decision paper dated the 1st of June 2016. So that decision paper was the result of a lot of collaboration um, with the housing sector, the disability sector, a lot of feedback, and they landed on a position that's called the decision paper. That's got most of the information in it um, that we're going to talk about today, and that's probably the best resource you can use. Um, it, there's, a, there's a lot in there to understand. There's a lot of complexity in there. There's a lot of greyness in there. So hopefully I can help answer some of the questions today regarding that greyness. Under that, they've put out some guidelines which are available on the NDIS website. Um, Where's there's planning guidelines, there's fact sheets. Um, NDI, uh, sorry, the SDA rules is interesting. We're still waiting for some more rules to come out around the scheme, um, and uh, we, we haven't seen all of those as yet. Basically, specialist disability accommodation is funding for housing um, for approved participants who require specialist housing solutions and have high support needs. That's the wording of the NDIA. Um, and we're all fascinated by that wording. Um, and I think someone asked the question, well, what is the criteria? 
you know, am I eligible for SDA? And a lot of people out there are saying, well, I have high support needs, I need a specialist environment or a modified home, you know, to live in more independently, therefore I should be entitled to SDA. And, and the real answer is, um, until you get SDA in your individual plan, there's really no guarantees at this stage. It's, um, it's funding related to a participant's goals. It's that wording that we always say, always see and hear from the NDIA, reasonable and necessary. Um, it's about housing. It's not funding for support services. That's very separate. This is a model where the NDIS has separated the bricks and mortar from the support services that people receive. And as we all know, a big problem in the past has been um, people with disabilities have resided in accommodation where the owner of the accommodation also delivers support services. And that's been problematic because if you weren't happy with the support that you were receiving, quite often you had no other choice but to find different accommodation. And we, we all know the big problem we have in the sector is a lack of supply of suitable accommodation. Therefore, choice was very limited. Um, it's important to acknowledge that the NDIA, uh, NDIA does not own or operate any of the SDA housing um, very deliberately, that they, they, they don't want to and never wanted to develop or build or own housing. Um, which is a little bit different from some social housing frameworks that we've been used to. Um, and the whole objective of this whole SDA framework is to try and promote and encourage the housing sector to build more accessible housing so that we ultimately have some sort of choice and control. Uh, I'll gloss over a little bit of this. Objectives of the NDIS Act. Um, yeah, you know, it's all about independence and social and economic participation, maximising independent lifestyles. That wording that we see again, you know, they're very big on promoting choice and control. It's all about giving people with disabilities choice and control. And that's an interesting context when we look at SDA. What choice and control do you actually have at the moment versus what will you have in the future? We'll, we'll talk about that later. I, I always emphasise when I'm talking to builders or developers or architects or even people with disability, but we really need to, to understand this. The most important person in this whole process and the whole SDA framework is the person with a disability themselves. This is all about you. It's not about developers and builders and the, and the housing sector. You know, we've all got a role to play, but ultimately, you, as the person with a disability, have control and choice and, and, and really a lot of power if you get SDA in your plan. Um, yeah, if you're approved for SDA, it does open a lot of doors and opportunities for you and you are in control of that funding. It is attached to you. And so that does give you a lot of, um, uh, of control and power in looking at what housing options you may want to explore. So, so here's one of the big questions, who's eligible for SDA? Well, this is what we know at this point in time. We all know it's 28,000 people nationally across Australia. Okay, that number is very set because it's been partly determined by the Productivity Commission, the Disability Reform Council, 
um, they've set aside seven billion dollars worth of funding to fund this whole scheme. Okay, it is. We, we can really say it's capped at 28,000 people, and that's going to create a lot of challenges. You know, a lot of people. We can have the argument, the discussion. Well, why is it 28,000? Because outside of this cohort of 28,000 people, we know, and it depends what figures you, you read or who you listen to, there's probably another, you know, at least another 30 to 70 or 80,000 people with a disability who won't get SDA in their plan who still need accessible housing. It's a massive, massive problem that we have in Australia. And, you know, the social housing framework that we have is not going to deliver those opportunities. So if you ask the NDIS or the NDIA, um, if you say, I didn't get SDA in my plan or I'm not eligible for SDA, so what are you going to do for me? What they will tell you is that we'll fund the reasonable and necessary cost of home modifications. As we know, not everyone has a home to modify. And some, you know, a lot of people with disabilities share accommodation or they're living in institutionalised accommodation or they're living with mum and dad who may be ageing. Mum and dad are worried about what's going to happen to their son or daughter as they age or pass on. So these are all the challenges. Um, again, the wording that the NDIA use is, you know, a participant, um, these 28,000 people, by the way, that's 6% of 460,000 people who will be under the NDIS scheme when it goes live nationally throughout Australia. So 28,000 sounds like a lot, a lot of people, but it's actually a very, very small percentage when we look at it um, holistically. Um, they say it's for people who require special design or specialist solutions to meet their very high need for constant or immediate available supports or people who require a high level of support with self-care, mobility, other activities. Um, and it's also for people who have a, a goal or aspiration about living more independently or having choice and control with their housing. Let's come back to this again a little bit later. So the slide we're looking at now is the target group for SDA funding. So this is that 28,000 people. How is it broken up? Or at a very broad level, that, that this is what we know. Um, there's about 16,000 people out of those 28,000 who are already living in some sort of funded accommodation. That funded accommodation may be you know, shared supported accommodation, group homes, um, it may be small or large residential centres, you know, that traditional disability accommodation that we've been used to for many years. Um, there's 6,200 people that Summer Foundation is obviously very aware of um, and work closely with who are in residential aged care. Um, um, so those 6,200 people across Australia will get SDA in their plans. And then we have this unmet need. Um, it's a magical figure of about 5,800 people who are not living in existing accommodation or not living in residential aged care. Um, they may be people with very high support needs that are living with ageing parents who have a housing need um, who will get SDA in their plan. So very broadly, this is how it's broken up. And we can break down these figures more by states, um, by different types of accommodation, 
but I think the take-home message about this is it's only 28,000 people. So someone asked before, well, what's the criteria? You know, the, the, the short answer is we don't really know yet in detail. Okay, we keep talking about people with very high support needs that are going to get SDA. People who are in residential aged care, or young people in residential aged care, people who are already living in funded disability accommodation, they're the people who are going to get SDA in their plan. Now, the reality is there'll be some of those people living in existing accommodation who won't want to move, and that's absolutely fine. You know, if that's their choice, that they're happy living where they're living, that's absolutely fine. There'll be people living in residential aged care that might be quite happy to stay there. Um, there'll be a lot of them that'll get SDA in their plan and it'll be an amazing opportunity to look at other options that they previously you know, didn't have. Um, so it's an interesting breakup. Um, I pose this question, where do I want to live if I've got a disability? And, and I think some of these questions are really, really important because if you get SDA in your plan, you know, it's one of the first questions I think you should ask yourself. And, and when I say where do I want to live, I'm not talking about just geographically or what area I want to live. It, it's also what type of housing, um, you know, what, what do I call home? What's important to me? And um, I think there's a lot of emphasis with SDA accommodation on being well connected to the community. We all know that. We all know that um, regardless of whether you've got a disability or not, if you're well connected to the community, it's, it's convenient, you, you might be more happier, um, you know, there's just an efficiency there if you're well connected to the community. And that means different things to different people. So for some people it may be I want to live here in Box Hill, for example, because I've got a great informal support network and my families and friends are here. It might mean um, this is where my formal support network is and I've got great carers as part of my program and so therefore I don't want to lose them and so I want to continue living here. Um, it might mean close proximity to you know, I want to live somewhere where it's convenient for me to, to walk to a shopping centre. And I know that that shopping centre is very accessible, it's air conditioned, it's got banks, it's restaurants, it's got a supermarket. So that's very high on my list as a priority. Um, it might mean I like getting out and I catching public transport is important to me. So I want to be in close proximity to transport. Um, so it might, you know, this means different things for different people. Now in an SDA context, and we'll come back to this, it's the response that we're seeing from the housing sector, I think it's taken a little bit of convincing for them to convince them that they should be building good accessible accommodation that is well connected to the community. Because what I've heard developers say to me is, hang on a minute, you're telling me I should be building next to the railway station and the shopping centre, that comes at a cost. That's going to cost a lot for me to buy land there or, or to build. And I can buy land five kilometres out of the city and it's going to cost me half of the amount. Now, as an SDA provider, I'm still getting the same payment, so why should I? And it's, you know, it's... So 
we're, we're starting to really challenge the housing sector in the way that they think about um, some of these factors and issues. And what I say to them is, well, if you choose to build accommodation that's not well connected to the community, the people who you want to reside in your, in your dwellings um, who are going to provide you with that funding stream are not going to decide to live five kilometres out of, out of town. If there's choice, they're going to choose to live in accommodation that is better connected to the community. Um, the other question is, what does home look like for me? And again, this means different things to different people. Um, one thing I really want to stress is, and I'm sure most people would agree with this, home does not have to be an institutionalised environment and it should not be an institutionalised environment unless a person is very happy living in that environment and they might be living in a more institutionalised type environment now, that's totally fine. Um, but I think housing options for people with disability in the past we've delivered accessible housing very poorly in Australia. And I think we've been very guilty of not involving people with a disability in the design process and working out what they really want in a home. We've made a lot of assumptions, you know, with different building standards and, you know, on thinking what we know, um, what is important for people with disability. Um, so home for me may be um, an independent living option and it may be an apartment. It may be a unit, a villa or a townhouse or it may be my own house because I want um, a bit of privacy, I want a bit of space, um, I want to have my son or my daughter live with me or my partner. So it means different things for different people. Um, what I think we have to get our head around with SDA is that there, there are different living options that this framework promotes and facilitates. So the wording I've used on this slide of apartment, unit, villa, townhouse, house, that's the sort of wording that the SDA paper uses and talks about. Now, it may not be independent living um, that I choose or want. It might be a shared living option. You know, it might be a house where I'm happy to live with someone else who has a disability, or I'm happy to share my house with a friend, you know, or, or family who don't have a disability. Or it may be a group home. So there's this cultural shift at the moment where the NDIA, you know, are very vocal about saying we don't want to see more group homes built under the SDA framework in the future. There's an expectation that the amount of group homes that we have in the community will diminish, you know, and they've, they've put some things into the framework to try and discourage people from building and developing group homes. One of the more controversial things is capping the maximum amount of people who live with a disability who live under the one roof of five. You know, this framework does not allow larger group homes to be funded or built. And that there's a lot of unhappy providers out there in the sector who, you know, who, who own and, and manage and uh, group homes with more than five people. You know, we're, we're, we're all very familiar with those. 
Now, th that type of accommodation will continue to be funded um, for, you know, anywhere up to 10 years. And so those sorts of group homes that we have under this framework, you know, those people need to make a decision about what they do with those group homes. Um, some people are very live, uh, happy to live in a group home and still want to build that sort of model, which is absolutely fine. So if I get SDA in my plan, what are my options? Um, and I think this is a fundamental aspect of SDA which, which everyone needs to understand. The framework is an affordable rental model and, and, and that's what it started out to be, is that um, to encourage the supply of accessible housing in the community and give me, a person with a disability who has SDA in my plan, to choose to rent a house or somewhere to live at an affordable rent. So we all know that the biggest barrier for a person with a disability accessing suitable housing in the community is, the obvious one is there's a lack of choice out there, that there's not a lot of houses that are accessible, but it all revolves around affordability. You know, most people with a disability can't afford to build their own house. They can't afford to buy their own house and they can't afford a market rent, even if they're lucky enough to find an accessible house. So this whole framework is designed to allow me with a disability to go and rent a house in the community and pay affordable rent. However, a lot of people don't realise that it also allows a form of home ownership as well. So that's a fundamental principle that we have to understand. I can rent an approved dwelling and pay affordable rent, but I can actually use this payment framework under the rules that we have to actually build my own home or own my own home. Some of the considerations if you choose to, to rent an SDA approved house or dwelling is I only pay affordable rent, okay? So that the rent that I pay is capped at 25% of my disability support pension plus Commonwealth rental assistance if I'm eligible for that, okay? And so I don't pay any more. So that makes it affordable for me to go and rent in the community. Um, now, the interesting thing about this concept is it doesn't matter where I choose to live in Australia, I still pay exactly the same amount of rent. So if I choose to live here in Box Hill, um, where the average market rent you know, may be significantly higher, or if I choose to go back to the country town where I grew up in, where the market rent is so much lower, I still pay the same amount of rent, okay? Um, and, and the other um, aspect of if I choose to rent, I can always change my mind and choose to move somewhere else. So I'm not really tied to that dwelling. If I choose to own my own home under this framework, um, so it is possible to use SDA payments to finance the debt that I raise um, to build my own home. Okay, we'll talk about more about that a bit later on. Um, the other big advantage if I design, if I decide to build my own home, is I can design it to suit my own needs and taste. Okay, I'm, I'm not um, 
you know, not in the hands of someone else, a developer out there designing and building something um, which they think that I might like. So I, I can be in total control of the building process and actually deliver something to my own personal taste and needs. Uh, what are the costs? Um, this is what I mentioned before. If I choose to rent, I pay 25% of my disability support pension plus Commonwealth rental assistance. And it, that's regardless of whether I'm lucky enough to be working and earning an additional income as well. Um, I have to pay for my utility costs, my gas, electricity and water wherever I live. Um, and I have to pay for my daily living expenses, you know, food, um, same stuff that we all have to pay regardless of where we live. So a lot of people are sitting back there saying, okay, I have SDA in my plan or I think I'm going to get SDA in my plan, but what are my options? What can I do? And, and this is the part I think that you can start to feel really empowered by. Now, unfortunately, at the moment, you're a little bit limited in your options if you want to go out there and choose to rent uh, an SDA-approved dwelling because the fact is, and we all know this, you know, the market hasn't responded yet to a point that we have a significant amount of choice. So the whole objective of SDA is to try and balance um, that um, supply and demand um, problem that we have in the community. We all know that there's a massive demand out there for good accessible housing. There's not much supply. It's going to take a little bit of time for this SDA framework and the housing sector to catch up. Okay? And I think that the projections that the NDIA put out there, you know, they were saying that because of this marvellous incentive and this framework, the housing sector is going to respond by, by, by building 500 to 900 new houses that are SDA approved across Australia every year for 10 years. That's basically the, the projections that they put out there. And uh, I can tell you that's, that's not happening. And it's probably not going to happen. So my own personal opinion is that the expectations of the NDIA and, and the government are probably not going to be met in, uh, at, with the framework that we're seeing at the moment. Now, what they've said they're going to do is after three years, they're going to have a look and review about how has the housing sector responded to this? How many SDA dwellings have we approved? How many have been enrolled? Okay, so they are going to review it. And what they say in the decision paper is they're going to review it. And, and based on the response from the housing sector, they may decide to make changes. Okay, which is really interesting because a lot of developers that I talk to out there say, oh, hang on a minute, you know, that means that the government might withdraw all of this funding. And how are you going to guarantee that if I commit to financing and building apartments or an SDA dwelling for someone, um, who's going to guarantee the payments? And we all know that can't guarantee anything that the government say or do or put in place. It can change very quickly. What I can say is that the government are very aware that if they don't fully implement this whole SDA framework and get all this, you know, increase the supply of accessible housing, they've got a much bigger problem on their hands. 
because in theory what it means is you know 10 15 20 years down the track they're probably going to be paying a lot more money to support people with disabilities because they don't not living in good accessible housing so no one can guarantee this they say it's a 20-year investment horizon or the payments are, you know, are going to be available for 20 years, but there's no guarantees. So the optimistic response of the review is that in three years' time, they look at the, the market response and they say, it wasn't quite what we had hoped or you know, the numbers are quite down, and they may actually increase the payments. So we'll all wait and see what happens. So. If we look at the housing sector, and when I talk about the housing sector, I'm talking about um, volume builders, I'm talking about small builders, I'm talking about for-profit developers, um, and I'm also talking about housing providers in the not-for-profit sector, like housing associations and housing providers. Because the, the fact is, really, anyone can be an SDA provider. Mum and dad can be an SDA provider. I can be an SDA provider. Even a person with a disability who has SDA in their plan can be a provider. So who's responding? What's happening out there? Um, it's really, uh, the, the response is interesting. Um, the non-for-profit sector, like the Summer Foundation and a lot of housing providers out there, um, are going to deliver good SDA options, good accessible housing. We're already seeing that. The problem we have is a lot of these projects, like the Hunter project that you know most of you would be familiar with up in Newcastle, those sorts of projects take three years to deliver. They, there's a lot of time and work that goes into a project like that. Um, you know, from at the point where a developer says, I'm going to build a block of apartments or a cluster of units, um, you know, they have to go through a design or feasibility process. They have to get development approval from council. Typically, you'll get local neighbours objecting to a proposal. So that, you know, draws out the process. Then they've got to tender it, they've got to get a builder, you know, and once the builder starts on site with a significant project, it may take another 18 months to actually build. So all of these things take time. And, and that's why we're not seeing a lot of, well, we're seeing a response for, 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 for SDA, but a lot of the response, a lot of the work that's happening at the moment is not going to be delivered for another couple of years unless people are building smaller scale options like single dwellings or, or a group home or um, projects that are quicker and easier to build. Um, and a question that you have to ask yourself is, do I want to rent? Do I want to wait and see what opportunities come up in my area? Um, or do I want to take control a little bit more and actually build my own house? or we use the SDA payments to, to finance my own project because that is very possible to do. Forget about the title of this, this slide which says opportunities for home ownership. Think about it as um, what are the advantages or disadvantages of SDA, so maybe rental or home ownership. So an advantage is um, I can 
deliver a customised solution to suit my needs or the needs of my son or, or my daughter. Um, it's more stable housing, particularly if I design, if I set out to own my own house. Um, there's interesting schemes that are emerging, um, particularly with the not-for-profit sector, um, of terms like rent-to-buy finance, where I'll give you an example. So a developer, or maybe a non-for-profit, builds an SDA dwelling and you choose to move into that dwelling and, and pay rent, you may have the capacity, because it's an affordable rent, to actually pay a little bit more. So there's providers offering um, partial ownership or, um, where you might pay additional payments and you're actually getting some equity in the house over time. Um, so, you know, we're starting to see some of these more innovative um, options that are becoming available to people with disabilities. Um, the SDA framework offers a really good return um, on investment. We'll talk about that later, about the payments. Um, some of the disadvantages, um, currently there's no mechanism that I'm aware of where if I've got SDA in my plan and I want to live in Box Hill, uh, wouldn't it be nice if I could go onto a database that's publicly available and, say, and see who's building SDA in Box Hill? When is it going to be finished? Is it an apartment? Is it a group home? If I'm a developer building SDA, wouldn't it be nice if I can put my project, my opportunity on that database and you know, I've got a vacancy risk if I'm choosing to build SDA and then have people with disabilities who have been approved for SDA approach me saying, I'm really interested in your development that you're doing, you know, and, and just start to engage with that person. Wouldn't that be wonderful? We don't have that at the moment. Um, we will see that, okay? Um, so we've got this problem with matching at the moment. We've got people with a need who are getting approved. We've got developers and builders thinking this is a great opportunity. I'm doing all these projects and we've got this big gap in the middle where the two aren't being connected. Um, one of the disadvantages is there's a vacancy risk. Remember, funding for SDA is attached to you as the participant. So if I'm a builder or a developer, I look at the payments and think, wow, this is wonderful. You know, I'm used to building apartments and getting a return of maybe four or five percent. That's what I do as a developer. And under the SDA framework, I can get a return of 10 or 15 percent. So I want to invest in building good accommodation. However, and I'm seeing this, that a lot of developers are very interested in building SDA, but ultimately they can't get over that vacancy risk because the funding, I only get that funding, that return, if I find someone who's been approved to move into my accommodation, then I get the funding. The risk for me is they may change their mind and move out, and all of a sudden that funding stops. So we'll come back to that a bit later on. Um, some of the other disadvantages, we've got some complexities at the moment with state safeguard requirements come back to that as well. An example of that is um, 
you know, in the, the SDA decision paper, it says if we'll talk about compliance later and what an SDA compliant building or dwelling is, but they say the NDIA are going to develop national safeguard requirements in 2018. Okay, that's fine, but we don't have them at the moment. So there's a couple of sentences in there in the paper that say until we do that, just comply with existing state safeguard requirements at the moment. Now in Victoria, those state safeguard requirements are compliance with DHHS capital development guidelines. If anyone's aware of those, what they are are basically additional and quite onerous fire safety requirements. For example, a, a building where a person with a disability lives under the building code or the national construction code may not need to have sprinklers but under the capital development guidelines, it does require to have sprinklers. So there are additional requirements. The trouble is there's a lot of developers and people who aren't aware of that at the moment. And so that's gonna catch a few people out. Um, bank valuations is an interesting one, okay? So if you're a person or a family member, you're a person with a disability or a developer, and you want to build SDA accommodation, it comes at an additional cost. We'll talk about this later as well when we look at compliance. So, you know, we talk about platinum plus, you know. So if I'm a builder and I'm going to build a three-bedroom house in Werribee, for example, it might cost me $300,000 to build, right? If I'm going to build an SDA dwelling, it might cost me $400,000 to build because I've got to maybe put sprinklers in it I've got to put wider doors, bigger bathroom, all of that sort of stuff. Now, there's an issue with getting finance from the finance sector because it's very difficult to go to a bank manager and say, look, I want to build a house. There's this great SDA framework at the moment. Here's the paper. Gives you an amazing return. You know, if I do an apartment, I'll get $100,000 a year. But ultimately, the banks will look at it from the point of view that I don't care how much extra it costs you to build that dwelling, I'm only going to value it as the $300,000 house. And I don't care how much return you're potentially going to get because there's a big vacancy risk there. So really the message there is if you're financing an SDA project, you know, Traditionally, you know, you might have to have 10 or 20% deposit, you know, to build or buy a house. You probably need a greater percentage of equity to put into the house to pay for those additional requirements that the, the bank won't want to um, realise. Um, I want to give you the perspective of a builder or a developer, and I think this is really interesting, and it might help you with your decision-making um, as you go along. So if I'm a builder or a developer, um, and, and I talk to lots of them, that uh, you know, a lot of builders are becoming aware of SDA and they think there's this amazing amount of money that I can get, you know, so I'm interested, I want to build accommodation, and then you sit down and have a conversation with them. These are the risks. And, and it is all risk versus reward. So SDA payments are forecast over a 20-year investment horizon, okay? That's all the financial modelling that's been done. However, 
um, as a builder, I have to finance the project or borrow money. As a builder, I have to design and build to a really strict specification that's different to a lot of standard houses that I'm used to building. As an SDA owner, to collect those payments, I have to maintain the property to a high standard. I have to pay for tenancy management. I have to be responsible for a significant refurbishment over the life cycle of that building because I need to accept that if there's a person with a disability who may be a wheelchair user who's renting my apartment or my house, they're probably going to cause a little bit more wear and tear than any other tenant will. So I have to build in all of these costs, which is fine. I also have to do minor home modifications um, or customisation. Now this is an interesting aspect that I don't think a lot of people anticipated or were aware of. We all thought or assumed that the NDIA would pay for home modifications for SDA accommodation, but they won't. And they do say that in the paper, okay? So if I choose to build an SDA compliant dwelling, um, I build it to a specification, it gets certified, I enrol the dwelling, and then all of a sudden um, Bill comes along and Bill's in a wheelchair and Bill's OT says to me, um, you know, Bill really wants to go and live in your apartment, he loves the location, he loves the apartment, but the benches are too high. He needs the benches lowered. And I can't go back to the NDIA and say, will you pay the reasonable and necessary cost of lowering those benches? Because they won't. Not, not under SDA. So as the owner of that dwelling, I have to pay for that if I want Bill to move in. You know, so these are some of the costs that are catching people out a little bit. And from a Summer Foundation point of view, we know this from experience with the Hunter project, okay? So we built those apartments, the great universally designed apartments. So one of the take home messages is for SDA, you need to be very clever about the way you design and build them. Good universal design. So building things in a way that can be easily customised. So some examples of that are height adjustable vanities using a flexible waist. So rather than getting a cabinet maker and a plumber to come in to change the height of the vanity for Bill, um, I can do it myself. You know, it might be on a sliding bracket system um, so I can easily customise it and cost-effectively do it and do it quickly. Kitchens, um, for example, extending the splashback down below um, bench height um, and being able to adjust the legs on the kitchen by pulling the kickers off, lowering it or raising it, cutting a new kicker to suit the height of bill, um, you know, it's something I can do cost-effectively rather than getting a cabinet maker to come back and say, we've got to rip out the kitchen, rebuild it. So these are the sorts of smart design things you need to think about. So as a builder, I'm expected to do all of this and pay for it, but here's the big catch. I've got to find a tenant, okay? I, I don't get any of this funding unless someone approved for SDA in their plan chooses to rent my house or my apartment. And this last point, finding a tenant and accepting the vacancy risk, 
is the point where a lot of developers say, you know what, this SDA framework, it's great, you know, it's a great funding stream attached to it, but at the end of the day, I don't want to accept that risk. Because well, what if I design and build this great accommodation and I can't find someone? Then I don't get any money. And so my only option is, is to return that property back to the mainstream rental market where I'm going to get a lot less return. Now, there's a flip side to all of this, obviously. What I say to those builders and developers is that we can mitigate all those risks, okay? <coughs> First of all, build in a location that's well connected to the community because people have choice and control and many years down the track, when we get a greater supply of SDA accommodation, you know, people are going to choose well-located housing versus housing that's not well-located. So it comes back to my point before, you know, be prepared to put extra money into an apartment or a house or a group home that's well-located in the community because that'll help mitigate your vacancy risk. Um, if possible, know who I'm building for. And this comes back to that matching the supply and demand in the community. If I'm a builder or a developer and I can go onto a database and see, wow, in Box Hill there's 15 people with SDA who want to live in Box Hill, okay? Versus um, in Werribee there's only two people on the database, you know? That helps me mitigate my risk by choosing to build in Box Hill versus Werribee. I'm just using places as an example. Um, promote my SDA opportunity. If I'm a builder or developer and I want to build SDA accommodation, I should promote it as much as possible to attract people. Um, you know, do a good job of marketing it. Um, connect with disability advocacy networks and say I'm building this, these great apartments in Box Hill, you know, can you promote it in newsletters or on websites and, and, you know, get people to come and talk to me. Be a good landlord and, you know, once you find someone who's been approved for SDA to move into your building, treat them with respect, you know, look after them, be a really good landlord because if you're not, once we get a greater supply of SDA accommodation, people have choice and control just to move out and find somewhere else. Maintain the property to a high standard. Now, if I'm living in a building and I'm constantly battling with the landlord to say, look, you know, this is broken or the walls need painting or I've really worn out the carpet and the owner says, well, bad luck, you know, um, I'm going to be less, I'm going to be more, you know, inclined to want to move. Um, provide great tenancy management. Above all, I think this is a really big one, build a home, build an environment that's not institutionalised and is very home-like. And we'll look at some photos and some examples of that. Because ultimately, you know, if it all falls apart for me as an SDA owner, I can't find someone who's been approved for SDA to move in. Um, ultimately I can return that home back to the mainstream rental market or sell it as a well-designed home or apartment. So what are we going to see with the next generation of NDIS funded housing? So here's four key points um, or trends that we're going to see. Um, there's going to be 
much more options for apartments for people with disabilities. And the reason for that is, when you look at the payment framework, the return on an apartment type of building is so much higher than a house or a group home or a villa or a unit. So a lot of developers are going to be really encouraged to build accessible apartments and a lot of accessible, a lot of apartments in the community are better located to the community because developers, it's higher density, it's more efficient to build. They build them in well-located areas because of town planning requirements say so you can um, and they're not built in um, greenfield areas or in back blocks. Um, the accommodation won't look too specialist. Housing is provided separately from support. The two have deliberately been broken, as we've discussed. Um, and the design is for independence and it's well located in the community. Um, what types of housing can be SDA? We've already spoken about this. So it can be an apartment, it can be a villa or townhouse. Different states use different terminology. It can be a house, it could be a group home. Now let's have a look at some examples um, and just break it up a bit by looking at some pictures. So this is a picture of the Summer Foundation's Hunter Apartments or the Newcastle Project, which it's referred to. Um, this is a 110 apartment development, um, well located in the community. We'll see a lot more of these sorts of developments where you've got a developer who's building, you know, maybe 50, 100 or 150 apartments in a building and there will be some SDA compliant apartments salt and peppered in that building. And the reason I say salt and peppered is that there's rules in the paper to say that that govern the density or the mix of SDA dwellings that you can have in a, in a development like this. And it's complex, but basically it's 15 or 15 percent, and it's referred to as an unintentional community. So that was deliberately put in there to stop developers, you know, building 100 apartments, making them all SDA compliant, and just finding 100 people with disabilities moving into the one building. So that's been done for a good reason. I commend the NDIA for doing that. This is a photo of one of the display apartments in the Hunter and this complies with the most stringent high physical support specification of SDA. I think what these photos show, and, and we're not saying that these are the best apartments in Australia or the most accessible, or we're saying this is a good example of how a developer or an individual can live in or build an SDA apartment or house that's high physical support category that it's very home-like. And a lot of people that have walked in these apartments on the tours that we offer walk in there and say, what's so special about this? <laughs> and I think that's ultimately we've achieved our objective if that's what people think because that these are apartments that personally I'd be very happy living in there. It doesn't look institutionalised at all. There's a lot of design features which I won't talk about too much. We can come back to that later. Um, you can go and look at these apartments yourself if you're able to and want to. Um, things like that's a fully customised kitchen that can be raised or lowered very quickly and cost effectively. 
the knee and foot clearance you see under the sink has a cupboard that slides in there. So if there's someone living in there that's not a wheelchair user and they don't need that space, put the cupboard in that looks like a more conventional kitchen. Height adjustable um, bench there, which is really practical for a lot of people. You can move it to different parts of the apartment. You can adjust the height. Some people will use that for meal preparation. Some people might use it as a study desk. Um, lots of design features, which a lot of you would be very familiar with. Okay, let's look at the pricing. <laughs> and there's a slide up here at the moment that says SDA benchmark pricing. And my advice with this slide and this formula is don't try and understand it. Forget about it, okay? Just accept the fact that in the SDA decision paper, table three on page 15, which we'll look at in a minute, gives you the outcome of all of this formula, okay? So in the modeling that they did for SDA, what they did is that they looked at all of these things. They, they assumed that a developer or a builder would have to borrow about 60% of the finance, assumed you had about 40% equity. It assumed that you would have to maintain the property over 20 years. It assumed that you would have to do a significant refurbishment of the, the home over that 20 year period. It assumed that you would have depreciation of the house and the land that, that, you, that you build on. It assumed that you have to pay for tenancy management. So it makes all of these assumptions in this really complicated formula um, and it basically came up with a price for different types of housing, okay? So don't, don't even try and understand it is my advice. Okay, so we've just gone through three slides of the formula. Don't worry about it. This is very difficult to see. The slide that's up now is, is table three on page 15 of the decision paper. This gives a developer or a builder or any SDA provider the maximum amount of income that I'll get in a 12-month period, it's an annual income, based on the assumption that I've got someone with SDA living in my house or my apartment, okay? What I want you to understand with this table is from top to bottom, it's broken up into existing stock or new builds, okay? The payments are heavily weighted to new builds because they're trying to incentivize the housing sector to build new houses. That's the whole point of SDA. But it needs to acknowledge there's a lot of existing accommodation out there that still needs to be funded. That's why there's an existing stock part at the bottom. In the far left-hand side, you've got the building type, okay? They're all the different types of housing. You'll see there's an apartment, one bedroom, apartment, two bedroom. Then you've got villas and units and duplexes. Um, you've got house, two residents, house, three residents, group home, four residents, group home, five residents. Notice there's no more than five residents um, that are being funded. And as we go from left to right, you've got categories, design categories. We've got basic, improved livability, fully accessible, 
robust and then high physical support. Now the payments increase as you go up in design category, okay? What you need to acknowledge out of that is that people who get approved for SDA will be approved for a different design category, okay? And that's really important to acknowledge, particularly if you're a builder or a developer building something, you need to understand those design categories, okay? We'll come back to that. Um, families and SDA, I think this is one of the grey areas and one of the most common questions that I hear, okay? I'm a mum or dad, I've got a son or a daughter with a disability or, you know, what can I do with SDA? The fact is that participants and families can be an SDA provider and claim payments, okay? Um, however, there's some exceptions or, or limits to this. You can't fund a family home through SDA payments. Now the basic definition of a family home is if I'm a person with a disability, it's my home and I can't have mum or dad living in my home, okay, and claim payments. I can have my husband or wife or my partner or my kids <laughs> living with me, but I can't have mum or dad living with me, okay? That's a very basic definition um, which gives you a good understanding, okay? So they won't fund a family home, but it could be my family home. There's some resources that are available on the NDIS website. Uh, I won't go through them all. Um, there's some, look, just get on the website, have a look. There's certain fact sheets and uh, explanations of SDA that are available. Um, I want to just spend five minutes on compliance because obviously when I sit down with architects or builders or developers, um, what is compliance for SDA? And I think you guys need to understand this as well. So where the NDIS landed on this, they said SDA homes have to be compliant with either silver level or platinum level of Liverpool Housing Australia. Liverpool Housing Australia is a set of design guidelines for accessible housing in Australia. They're not legislative requirements. They're not called up under the Building Code of Australia. They're voluntary guidelines. Now, these came out, uh, I think, six or seven years ago now, uh, and it was an initiative by the government that said we want more accessible housing in Australia, let's put out these, these guidelines and let's make them available to the housing sector to follow. And if you build a compliant silver, gold or platinum house, we'll give you an accreditation. And as a builder, you can promote that. Now, the reality, what actually happened is we, we, we didn't see hardly anyone building to these requirements because it was only voluntary. The only way we're going to increase accessible housing outside of the SDA framework is to legislate it into the building code to make people and builders do it. And that's a whole other issue. So what the NDIS did, they said, we're going to adopt the silver category, the, the not too onerous requirement, and the very high platinum category. And we're going to add some plus requirements onto there as well. Luckily, 
what isn't SDA compliance is compliance to Australian Standard 1428 Part 1. For anyone who's worked with that standard or is familiar with it, it's a wonderful standard for access provision for public buildings. It, it, it makes you design a great public toilet or ramp or compliant handrails on a public toilet. Now, if the NDIS had have said, we want all housing to comply with 1428, because there's a perception out there that housing should comply to 1428, this is what we would have ended up with. And there's two photos here. The top photo is a compliant 1428 bathroom, which has grab rails, has a backrest on the toilet, has a colour contrast toilet seat. And we all know that the reality is there's a lot of people with high support requirements who will never use those grab rails or don't need that sort of institutionalised bathroom. The picture on the bottom is a Liveable Housing Australia Platinum compliant bathroom. See how much more home-like it is? There's no grab rails, but all the walls have structural provision to add grab rails if someone needs them. So I, I just put this in here because I think we're lucky that compliance isn't 1428. So let's look at the categories of SDA. The very bottom, improved livability. The, the wording from the NDIA, it's not, not my wording, it's for people who have sensory, intellectual or cognitive impairment. Now, compliance is Livable Housing Australia Silver with some plus requirements of colour contrast, luminance contrast, improved wayfinding. Next category up is fully accessible. This is for people who have a significant physical impairment. Compliance is livable housing platinum with the plus requirements of um, access to the bathroom vanity and, and, and ex all, all doors to be accessible, um, power to doors and windows so you can fit automatic door openers more cost effectively in the future and consideration to access to kitchen and cooking appliances. The next category up is robust. This is for, it's defined as resilient construction, reducing risk to the participant and the community. Again, I hate that definition and wording, but the compliance for that is, and, and this is probably more geared towards people with behaviours of concern, it goes back to livable housing silver level, so we've dropped the level in compliance, but with more plus requirements like um, you know, high impact resistant wall lining, um, laminated glass, um, appropriate soundproofing. Pretty good specification if you're building a prison probably as well. Uh, the highest category of SDA is high physical support this is for people with significant physical impairment and very high levels of support. Now this is <laughs> compliant to fully accessible, which is the Platinum Plus, with some other plus requirements. So we call it Platinum Plus Plus. Some of those plus plus requirements are you've got to have 950 millimetre clear opening width doors. Now Livable Housing Platinum says you only need 900 millimetres this is asking for 950. To achieve that, you need to use a door leaf which is 1020 wide, okay, to achieve that clear opening. I look at a lot of plans and buildings that are about to be built or have just been built, 
and they've only got 950, sorry, 970 or 920 doors because that's what we've been used to using in the industry. We think of those as wide doors and I look at buildings and try and certify them for compliance and I have to say to the owner, I'm really sorry, it's non-compliant to SDA, okay? So one of the take-home messages at the end of it I want to say to you is you need to engage the right people and I'm talking about architects or access consultant or someone who's very familiar with SDA to make sure that you don't get caught out on a very technical requirement. I'll give you another example. If you've got a window in a bedroom that's more than the window sills greater than a metre off the ground, it's non-compliant, okay? So again, it can be an amazingly accessible home or an apartment, but these little technicalities will catch you out. Justin, that was a really informative presentation. So does anyone want to start with a question that arose for them during that presentation? So I'm just going to repeat the question for the benefit of the people on the teleconference. TAC clients, are they eligible for SDA payments? It's a really interesting question and I think it's a little bit grey at the moment and I'm very pleased to say we've got Luke Bosher in the room. Luke might be able to provide a little bit um, more of an answer to this question. But we're about to see a precedent being set um, in New South Wales um, of a client who's a client of a compensable insurance scheme up there who is looking at separating um, or splitting some of their benefits between the NDIS and the compensable insurance scheme that they're under, just like a TAC client. Um, so I think the answer will be that probably in the future, is that fair to say, Luke, in that um, some of those compensable insurance scheme clients like the TAC will have the option, if they're eligible for SDA, that they may be able to claim an SDA payment from the NDIS and get their support requirements delivered by the TAC. Um, but that'll be a space that we're watching at the moment. Do you want to elaborate, please, Luke? Sure, thanks. I'll just add something extra to what Justin was saying. I'm Luke from the Summer Foundation. Um, so it will be really interesting to see what happens in the Hunter where there's a compensable um, recipient who doesn't have housing funded in their package but from their compensable scheme but um, could potentially get it funded by the NDIS. I think the only thing I wanted to add was just that in general, um, you can become an NDIS participant if you're also a TAC client um, or a lifetime care and support client. But the way the NDIS sees it is that they expect that you'll pursue all your avenues for compensation and then just come to the NDIS for any extra needs you have. So it will really just be about whether the NDIS says that you should be able to get this funded through TAC. And if you can, they'll expect someone to go to TAC first. And so NDIS would be more like the insurer of last resort. If you've explored all the other options, TAC have given you a clear indication that they won't pay for it. Um, that's when we think the NDIS will be able to step in and fund it. But yeah, New South Wales will set that test case. And of course, it would be reasonable and necessary support. Just for the benefit of the tape, um, the question is, I have a son with very high support needs. We would like to build a house using SDA payments. 
the opportunities might be that my son was the owner, the family was the owner, or a third party or entity such as a foundation or a trust was the owner. The questions would be which of these might be the preferable way to go about it. If my son became the owner and picked up the SDA payments, would those payments affect his disability support pension? And also, does he pay rent to himself? That that rent, that 25% of your DSP rental component is a little unclear how that works if you're the owner. Thanks, that's a really good question. And I think the easy short answer is all of those options are available and, and feasible. I'll give you something else to think about. Um, another option would be, and I've seen this um, example, I'm working with a client who has uh, connected with a builder who is interested in building SDA accommodation where they're working with the builder to say this is what we want as a housing solution. We want to live in this area. Um, we want to be involved in the design process as an individual and a family. So we want to work collaboratively with you. So in that scenario, the advantage is the builder or developer is financing the project and you're not having to find the finance uh, with the understanding that uh, when that dwelling's finished that, that your son or your daughter or yourself would move in and then the builder or the developer is able to claim the SDA payments as the owner of the dwelling. So that, that's another combination which is certainly possible as well. In regard to rent, um, the 25% of, of DSP that we talk about, they refer to as reasonable rent contribution. So that's a capped amount, that 25% of DSP plus Commonwealth rental assistance. If, as a family, you built your own dwelling for your son or your daughter, or your son or daughter built their own dwelling, you obviously could choose whether to charge them rent or not, and you probably wouldn't. Um, if I built a dwelling for myself, if I had a disability, I'm not going to charge myself rent, obviously. So what I'm entitled to is the SDA payment component that comes from the NDIS, um, which is still a significant amount of money. Um, I think the reasonable rent contribution, 25% of DSP plus CRA, works out to be about seven and a half, eight thousand dollars $8,000 a year, Luke, roughly. Um, so the majority of the money is coming from the NDIA. As far as the tax implications and the income, um, I'm certainly not an expert by any means from a financial point of view. Um, I don't think that the SDA payment would affect the disability support pension, Luke, not sure. So uh, don't quote me on that. I think that's something you would have to get very clear financial and tax advice on from an accountant or someone who could provide clear direction on that. There's been a lot of talk about SDA payments as an income stream and is it taxable um, as an income or is it a payment uh, like a grant from the government that, that an entity or an individual is receiving? Again, I don't know the answer um, and I think very soon we will quickly understand that issue um, as a result of precedents that are set and advice that people receive, which will be shared amongst the community. I think that tax implication is very important um, <coughs> consideration, you know, what anyone would be doing, unless uh, you're the developer, I suppose. 
Absolutely. Um, I mean, yes, obviously the whole financial side of this um, and the tax implications is, is a huge consideration. I think anyone wanting to build SDA or claim SDA, whether you want to build your own dwelling, um, that's something you'd have to get some very clear advice on from the right people. I'm sorry I can't answer that more specifically. Thanks for the question. I'll, it's quite a complex question. There's many components. I'll, I'll try and summarise it. So, um, Lady was asking that she's got an opportunity to purchase an accessible apartment which uh, an accommodation provider is building as part of a larger development of apartments and that she has some equity or money or capital that she could put into the purchase but not the full amount and what options are available and if she came into some money later on in life how could she use that to uh, finance the entire purchase and will the government provide any assistance on the shortfall is that fair right so what the, the lady's saying is about a third of the finance would be borrowed from a bank about a third would be her own money and then there's that third that there's a gap or a shortfall and so what are her options to to finance that um, so there's a few aspects to this question I think Fundamentally, if you want to claim an SDA payment for any dwelling, first of all, you've got to make sure that it's actually compliant and because you need to be able to enrol that dwelling as a compliant SDA dwelling. Um, so you need to get some good advice and get someone to have a look at it for you to make sure that it complies with the, with the standards and the specifications because what you might find is, is you commit to purchasing that apartment with the expectation or the thinking that you'll be able to claim payments and you actually may not be able to. Another part of that question that you need to consider is um, when did the occupancy permit, when was that issued or has it been issued yet? Because if an occupancy permit was issued after the 1st of April this year, you're able to claim payments as new um, housing stock, which are significantly more than existing housing stock. So that'll help you weigh up the whole feasibility of, of what you may be able to claim from the NDIA. Um, the third part of that from a finance point of view, as we said before, there are people in the finance sector who understand SDA uh, more so than, say, your traditional bank manager at your local bank. So it might be good for you to talk to some of those people who are more familiar with SDA in the finance sector. They might be able to provide you with a, some other advice. Um, the basically the, the, the government's not going to help you by making up that shortfall because they're also providing payments under the SDA framework if that makes sense so if you want to purchase a dwelling you're going to have to raise that finance yourself by any means that you can however as we mentioned before there's some models that we're seeing out there and good models that involve shared equity so initially 
you may be able to talk to that owner or that provider and say, look, I'm actually able to purchase 50% of the, of the cost of this apartment. Um, can I do that? And can I pay off that 50% over time? Or what sort of shared equity arrangement can I negotiate with you? So my advice would be sit down with that provider and just see what options are available. Because I'm aware of a couple of housing providers in the community who do offer that. Um, some people, because you're only paying reasonable rent contribution, can actually afford to pay their rent for an SDA dwelling and they've got some money left over that they could be putting in towards the equity of, of, of that property. So over time, you know, you might start off at 50% equity and you might be able to pay some of that off over time. So it's a difficult question to answer, but I think you need to get some good financial advice and then sit down with that provider and just see what options are available. So the question from the gentleman was, what types of buildings are we seeing built, whether they're apartments or group homes or homes? What actual examples are we seeing? And the question is about the use of the building and any implications that the use of the building may have. Are they commercial or are they residential? And he was making the point that that may affect the finance or um, the capacity of someone borrowing against the use of that building. Is that a fair summary? Okay. So the, the primary intent of the SDA framework is it's all about residential housing. It's all about trying to build a, an, an increased amount of accessible housing supply to give people choice. So it's not about commercial buildings at all. However, once we start to look at different types of buildings and different types of housing, remember we spoke before about unit, units, villas, apartments, houses, group homes. Um, we have a regulatory framework in Australia, a building regulatory framework called the, the Building Code of Australia or the National Construction Code. Now, that legislation exists in Australia and we can't change that. We have to comply with those requirements. So a building surveyor is responsible for checking building compliance. So if you want to build an SDA dwelling, whether it's a group home or a house or an apartment, you go through the normal, typical building process. You know, you have an architect design what, what you need, what you want. And then the building surveyor will look at those plans and he'll classify it. Now, it's an interesting question because it will either be a class one dwelling, which is a residential dwelling, it'll be a class two dwelling, which is an apartment or a multi-storey building, or it'll be a class three dwelling. Now, under the definition of the building code, a class three dwelling is, is a house for a number of unrelated persons for long-term or transient living who have a disability, okay? So the regulatory requirements for a class three building are a lot more stringent than a class one or a class two because the building code acknowledges you've got people with disability living under the one roof. So in the context of a group home, it's probably going to be a class three building, okay? So that's going to introduce some our things like sprinklers and you know parts of travel within the dwelling. Um, 
and you have to comply with all those because that's the regulatory framework that we have. Um, so, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question properly, but the point I'm making is there's different types of housing. We've got regulations that apply to different types of housing. From a finance point of view, um, I, financiers and banks may look at a group home very differently than they would a standalone dwelling or an apartment because the way that they will look at it is from a risk point of view. You know, um, if someone defaulted on the mortgage, um, then what's their ability to recoup the cost of that dwelling? Now, if it's a group home, it's a little bit more specialised. So you're right. To, you know, to finance a class three building, that financier may require more equity be put into that sort of building as opposed to an apartment or a, or a standalone dwelling. So the NDIA have defined these in the decision paper. And it's an interesting point because I get some people coming up to me and they show me a plan of a, of a couple of units on a block of land, okay? And they say to me, I'm building these apartments. And you say to them, no, actually, they're not apartments, they're units. And they say, no, they're apartments, because if I call them apartments, I get $100,000 a year. If I call them units, I get $40,000 a year. I'm just making those figures up. But what the NDIA have done in the decision paper is that they've defaulted back to the building classification that the building surveyor determines. So. No building surveyor is going to classify those units on a piece of land as a class two because they're not. Okay, so that's designed to try and stop people saying, oh, I've got apartments, it's, you know, I'm calling them apartments where they're actually units. So when you look at the building types in the decision paper, you'll see a table with all the types of dwellings down one side and it'll actually give the building code of Australia classification of the building but further to that you know we mentioned before about the state safeguard requirements and the additional um, things that you may have to put into those buildings that are above and beyond what the building code says um, so in Victoria you know I mentioned the capital development guidelines that you have to comply with as a safeguard requirement so the building code may not require sprinklers you know, for a standalone house, but you need to be careful because, you know, you may actually have to put sprinklers in. So you really need to get good compliance advice when you're designing and building. So the, the question was um, about family homes, um, you know, and can, uh, can a separate dwelling be built or placed on the same um, title or piece of land as a family home? And the, the, the short answer is yes, it can, okay? So th there's some requirements and rules in the decision paper. Um, there's really nothing stopping multiple dwellings being on the one title or parcel of land. As long as each of those dwellings comply with all the requirements, and one of the requirements is that um, to enrol a dwelling under the SDA requirements, it has to, as a minimum, have a, a kitchen, a bathroom, a living area, a bedroom, and an entrance, okay? 
so it has to have all those features to be classified as a dwelling then you would look at the additional compliance requirements for the design category you know is it silver is it platinum has it got the plus requirements but the short answer is there's nothing stopping um, a, well, a mum or dad building a separate dwelling like a granny flat or a unit out the back on their own land for their son or daughter and enrolling that dwelling so the question was in the state of victoria we have some planning restrictions and requirements around dependent persons units and um, so we might have an example where someone builds a dependent person's unit in their backyard enrols it as an SDA dwelling and claims SDA payments. What happens if mum or dad move or sell the property? What implications does that have? I think that's a really complex answer and you'd have to look at it on a case-by-case -case basis. I don't know. Um, it would have to continue to meet all the requirements that the NDIA say. Um, and as, as long as it's meeting those requirements still, I couldn't see why. Um, the SDA approved participant residing in there couldn't continue to claim the payments. Um, a related question to that is, what happens if, if I build an SDA dwelling and I'm the owner and I have a participant living in my dwelling, um, can I sell the, the dwelling? You know, can I sell the apartment? And um, whoever purchases that apartment now, if I've got a rental agreement in place with a participant and I'm claiming the payments, you know, the short answer is yes, I can sell that dwelling. And the new owner, as long as they met the requirements of registering as an SDA provider and fulfilled all their requirements, then yes, they would then be entitled to claim the payments. Okay, so we've had a question saying, can you use the SDA payments to rent a house or a dwelling in the mainstream housing market so, for example, someone coming out of uh, an SRS who's, you know, got SDA in their plan, can they rent a standard house or unit in the in the marketplace? Is that a fair summary? Okay. So, the to to be able to claim SDA payments on a dwelling or to be able to move into a dwelling and whether it's yourself claiming the payments or the owner of the dwelling, the dwelling has to be compliant, okay? So it sounds like that would be an example where it would be existing stock that's out there in the community at the moment. Um, it would have to be compliant to, to some degree, okay? Now there is provision in the pricing payments for um, basic, um, so I think you'd have to look at that on its merits and it may fall into the category of basic um, design category um, and so the payments may be significantly less but there's nothing stopping anyone with SDA moving into any dwelling as long as it's enrolled as an SDA dwelling um, so you can't just you know pick up Saturday morning's paper have a look at the rentals that are out there and say that's where I want to live and I want to use my SDA payments to pay only affordable rent in that house because the house may not be compliant for SDA or you know it may not be enrolled it's probably not going to be enrolled so there's a little less choice and control when you look at it from that from that aspect 
Um, it's going to take a little bit of time until there's more properties that are available out there that are SDA compliant and have been through the whole process. Um, so the question was, it was questioning the payment rates or returns for different design categories. Now, please don't hold me to any of those numbers that I may have said or quoted. The point that I was making was that for the high physical support category, which is the most stringent, okay, um, the, an example of the returns um, for a two-bedroom apartment um, with OOA, and we never spoke about OOA, so OOA is on-site overnight assistance, okay? So it's basically provision within that building or group of apartments where there's infrastructure there for a support provider or support workers um, to deliver care, okay? So basically what it means is the ability for inactive um, overnight accommodation for a support worker, okay? So a two-bedroom apartment with OOA the total payment is $110,202 if you look at table three. Now that includes the reasonable rent contribution from the participant and the payment from the NDIA. It's also assuming that someone's living in that apartment with zero vacancy risk for the full year. Okay. Now, if we have a look at, for example, um, high physical support with OOA and it's only, um, let's look at a villa, one bedroom, one resident, um, that payment drops down to 60548 So that, that the point that I was making was there's a greater incentive for people to develop SDA apartments. And generally, it, there's an acknowledgement there that apartment's going to cost you more money to build or to buy than a standalone house. Now, while we're talking about the payments, um, these rates are adjusted depending on the location in Australia because some of the feedback that the housing sector said was, hang on a minute, it's, if, if I choose to build SDA in the Northern Territory, the building costs up there are so much more than they are in Melbourne. So in order to get the sector to respond all over Australia, they apply a location factor Okay, and that's found in the appendix at the back of the paper. So if you wanted to build in the Northern Territory or Darwin, you would probably find a location factor of maybe 1.1 something. So you actually get more money to try and compensate for that. The other thing we need to note is if you have sprinklers in your accommodation, um, regardless of whether you have to or you don't have to, you also get a percentage for sprinklers as well. So if it's apartment style accommodation, I think it's 1.2% extra, or if it's a standalone house or anything else, it's 1.9%. So the question was, if someone's got an ISP already, will the NDIS just roll that into their, their future plan or package? But we need to acknowledge that, that support the reasonable and necessary support funding um, has been separated from the bricks and mortar. Okay, so we've got the SDA framework, which is the income stream for the accommodation or the housing, and then a person's individual support requirements, 
are a separate piece of their plan or their package. And, and obviously some people, you know, it depends on where they're living and the environment they're living as to how much support they need. So some people might move into an SDA property where it's such an accessible environment and they can do more for themselves where their support funding may actually diminish or decrease, which is a great thing. You know, for other people, they might move into an environment where it stays the same or it might actually increase. Some people may need additional support funding while they transition into an SDA accommodation, you know, because there's a bit of anxiety there, it's a new environment, and they may actually need additional supports when they move in. I think that that's been a lesson of the Summer Foundation for our tenants in the Hunter Project. You know, there's, for people moving into a new environment, it can be a real time of anxiety, it's a time of change, and you need to support people to make that transition to be successful. So the question was, um, does the NDIS have a partnership with the Department of Housing? Um, the short answer is no, not really. So we've, this is a whole cultural change in the way we fund accessible accommodation. So traditionally what's happened is that funding for accessible accommodations come from federal government through state government, might be Department of Housing. This is removing all that funding away from um, basically the Department of Housing and it's um, acknowledging that there's some existing stock out there which housing associations may own or providers or the Department of Housing, they'll continue to fund that, but the funding for that accommodation or housing now is actually coming through the NDIS. Um, so again, we've got to remember the funding's attached to the participant. That's the biggest change we're seeing. You know, this is, this is a massive shift in the way we've been used to funding disability accommodation. It's all attached to the participant. So even for the Department of Housing who, who own housing stock at the moment, they may have someone with a disability residing in those houses. They will continue to be funded as long as that person continues to live there, okay? It'll only be funded as existing stock and it may only be basic because it doesn't really comply with anything else. But as soon as that person moves out, it won't be funded anymore. And the interesting part of this is what we're going to see is the larger group homes, that there's, you know, there's a lot of them out there that have more than five beds. Once the funding stops for those group homes and they either close down or people residing there have to find different housing solutions, what's going to happen to that property? You know, we're going to have, you know, this misalignment of stock where we've got these older, more traditional group homes that kind of won't be fit for purpose anymore. Now, if they're owned by a housing provider, they're probably planning at the moment for that transition. You know, they may think in the next five years we're going to actually um, find an alternative solution for the residents, then we're going to bulldoze it and we're going to build independent living options or a smaller group home or two dwellings on the site. Okay, so the question was, what, how many dwellings can you build on a parcel of land? Like, for example, can you build a group home or two group homes or a group home and independent living units? And how do 
if you're wanting to do that, how do you get the funding? Can you get SDA funding up front? Well, um, as in when they're finished. As in when they're finished. Okay. So do we get the initial first year or first year of payment and then we can sell them off? Okay. So let's deal with the first part of the question about what can you build on, on a parcel of land? And it's an interesting question because what the NDIA have deliberately trying to avoid is larger concentrations of people with a disability living in the one area. Now, there's two definitions. There's an intentional community or an unintentional community. Most situations we're going to be dealing with are called unintentional communities. Now, the definition is that a group home dwelling can only house a maximum of five people with a disability or five participants plus the carers or on-site infrastructure for support staff. However, you can build multiple dwellings on the same parcel of land, however there's restrictions on it. So you could build a five bedroom group home and you could also build a total of ten additional independent living units on that same parcel of land. There's very complex once you start looking at combinations and you need to be really careful, get some good advice. So you can have up to 15 enrolled dwellings on one parcel of land. So that combination might be a five bedroom group home and 10 independent living units. It might be two five bedroom group homes it might be a house for three residents and 12 independent living units. But you need to be very careful that you stay within those limitations. So the question was, we've got three blocks of land and, and, and that's, that's a very, very grey area. And uh, my advice would be, I would try and write to the NDIA and get their clarification on it. Um, you're probably not going to get a very specific answer. They'll probably send you back the decision paper and say all the rules and requirements are in here, work it out yourself. <laughs> um, technically speaking, if you have different titles or parcels of land, I think you could deal with each individual title within the rules on their own merits. Um, technically speaking, it's probably not the intent of the framework, but I would get some good advice regarding that. Now, with regard to the payments, or when can you sell them, when do you start getting the payments, um, there's several things that have to happen, okay? You have to design and build a building, and you have to have an occupancy permit. Now, the date of that occupancy permit is really important because if it's after the 1st of April this year, you're going to get payments for new housing stock, okay? So when you go to enrol that dwelling with the NDIA, they're going to ask you for uh, some bits of information. They're going to ask you questions like, what design category does it uh, comply to? They're going to ask you, does it have sprinklers? What's the street address so we can work out the location and apply a location factor? They're going to ask you, um, um, does it comply with state safeguard requirements? So you're going to answer all these questions 
and you're going to provide some documentation to them and then they're going to accept that dwelling as an NDIA SDA enrolled dwelling, okay? Now, no one's going to get any payments, no owner of that dwelling until the first night that someone moves in, okay? So you can't claim any payments until someone's living in that dwelling, okay? Now initially, if you build a group home and you have one person move in, um, say next week, you're gonna start getting payments for one resident of that five bedroom group home. Um, as people progressively move in, you'll get the payments for those people. The day that someone chooses to move out, the payment stops. Now my understanding is that as a provider, you can claim these payments monthly, okay? So um, the NDIA, when you register that dwelling, they're going to ask you questions like, give us your bank account details, um, so they can do that transfer of payments. Um, the SDA payments may actually go through the participant in some cases, okay? Um, because they're in control, it's their money, so the participant would be passing on the SDA payment and paying their reasonable rent contribution. Um, as an owner, your, your question was at what point can we sell that dwelling, whether it be to a parent or someone with a disability. You can sell that dwelling at any point in time, as long as you have a title for that property, for that dwelling, okay? So the requirements for selling a dwelling are, are no different to any other house in the community. And whoever becomes the owner, has to enrol themselves as an NDI, sorry, as an SDA provider to, to enable them to claim that payment. So, and, and I'm seeing many examples of that model that you're talking about where um, people and developers or builders with great social outcomes in mind you know, at taking on some of that risk and financing projects and designing and building accommodation and then passing it on or selling it to um, parents or a person with a disability. Yeah, and, and for some people with a disability, they want to live in a more intentional community or have that, you know, feeling of community amongst um, other residents living um, in that cluster or in that apartment or in that home. Um, and that's totally fine. It's all about choice and control. I've heard of a lot of examples where parents have recently built housing for their son or daughter. They may have finished it a couple of years ago. They knew nothing about SDA. You know, had they have waited, sadly, for another couple of years, well, then they may have been able to claim more payments. Um, they may be in a position to enrol that housing that they built for their son or daughter as existing stock, if it complies. Um, there's going to be lots of different scenarios that we that we become aware of. So, so the question was, and the point was, and it's a great point, is that there's people living in group homes that are larger than five bedroom. Um, the NDIA will call that or define that as legacy stock which only has a limited tenure or, or time frame for funding, where is the choice and control for those people who are happily living in places like that um, if they're going to be forced to move out um, where there may not be other options that they're comfortable or happy with? The NDIA have said, and, and 
Bruce Bonahady and David Bowen have publicly said this, that they, they don't want to see anyone forced out of any accommodation. So they have put provision into the framework which they think is reasonable regarding these time frames of either another five or ten years of funding um, larger group homes that in theory is meant to give people and families enough time to consider other options. I take your point that some of those people may be perfectly happy living where they are, who they're living with and that environment and they're eventually going to have to be forced to look at other options and there may not be any other options in that local community. Um, it's a really interesting point. Um, I don't think I don't think well, the NDIA is not going to want to see anyone forced out of any accommodation. They've made a commitment to continue funding existing accommodation with the condition that they put those time frames there. So I'm sorry, I, I can't answer that. I think the theory is that the, the housing sector or the provider who currently owns that accommodation will explore other opportunities and, and deliver another option um, or repurpose the building, or I, I don't know. So the question was, um, um, we're hearing of fire-resisting walls being built in larger group homes to get around some of the technical compliance. And it's a fascinating issue because the rules say, or the, the decision paper says, group homes no more than five bedrooms. However, there can be additional dwellings attached to that building. So the scenario that we're referring to is you might have a six bedroom group home and the owner of that home decides to build a fire resisting wall through part of the house to separate the six bedroom from the other five. It's technically possible and I have looked at a couple of plans recently where, where that is the intention. However, that six bedroom that you're separating has to have a kitchen, a living area, bedroom, bathroom and a separate exit. Um, it has to be separated by a fire resisting wall to the rest of the accommodation. If you tick those boxes, it's technically compliant. Now, as a certifier, like I, I look at situations like that and I think clearly there's an intent to get around that requirement that's in the paper. I don't think it's what the NDIA, the NDIA want to hear or see. However, you can only certify and assess buildings with what you're presented with and the rules that govern them. So I think we will see that. Um, and yeah, we've got not going to say that's right or wrong. You just have to comply with the rules. It's a really good question. So once a resident reaches the age of 65, do they still receive SDA funding? Yeah, okay. So short answer is yes, because um, anyone entering the NDIS scheme before the age of 65, you know, becomes a participant um, and they're in the scheme for the rest of their life the same rules will apply to SDA. So the short answer is yes. Okay, so the question was, do I have any advice for anyone um, to promote their chances of getting an SDA package or SDA as part of their plan? 
Yes, I do. So this is one of the take-home messages. I think we all have to be our own advocate, okay? Um, there's rules that govern SDA, and ultimately it's the decision of the NDIA, the NDIS, to say you're an eligible participant or not. Now, from experience, I know that there's people who work for the NDIA at the moment, there's planners out there who don't have a good understanding of SDA at the moment because it's still quite new. Now, that's a little bit sad, but we all have to be our own advocate, and my advice would be the first opportunity you get to sit down with an NDIA or NDIS planner or anyone from the NDIS, you need to say, I know about SDA, I want SDA in my plan, am I eligible for it? I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with being your own advocate and putting it out there and asking the question. Um, if you think you fit the definition that the NDIA have put out there, as broad as it is at the moment, and keep in mind we haven't seen the eligibility criteria in a lot of detail. We know there's 28,000 people, they're going to be approved, they're going to have high support needs, they're going to need a specialised environment for the delivery of their support, they're going to be young people living in residential aged care, or they're going to be young people in current, um, more institutionalised accommodation or shared supported accommodation. Um, my advice is ask. You know, if you think you fit that criteria, uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with asking, you know. Um, say you've got an awareness of SDA, I think I fit the criteria, I want SDA in my plan, and then that's a decision for the NDIS to, to answer and put in your plan if you're eligible. Um, and it'll be fascinating to see what the more detailed criteria or definitions are because I suspect that they're probably grappling with that a little bit at the moment. I think uh, the point about being your own advocate is probably a good spot to end. I think that's the take-home message um, on the NDIS at the moment. And if in doubt, seek advice, ask around, talk to others, talk to your peers, go to every meeting you can, read everything you can, and ring us up. Um, Thank you so much, Justin. That was just fabulous.